Chapter 5 of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 5 Thus it was that James Milbank entered on his first night at Oristown. The surprise, the excitement, and the culminating incident of the evening would have been disturbing to a man of even more placid temperament, and rebel as he might against the weakness, he lay awake considerably longer than was his wont in the uncomfortable canopied bed, listening to the numberless infinitesimal sounds that break the silence of a sleeping house, from the faint occasional cracking of the furniture to the scurrying of a mouse behind the plaster of the walls. Then, gradually, as his ears became accustomed to these minor noises, another sound, unnoticed in the activity of the earlier hours, obtruded itself softly but persistently upon his consciousness, the subdued and regular breaking of the sea on the rocks below the house. A slight sense of annoyance was his first feeling, for it was many years since he had slept by the sea. Then, quietly, lingeringly, soothingly, the rhythmical persistence of the sound began to tell. Imperceptibly the confusing ideas of the evening became pleasantly indistinct. The numberless contradictory feelings blurred into one delightful sensation of indifference and repose. With the salt, moist air borne to him through the open window, and the great, untiring lullaby of the ocean rising and falling upon his senses like the purring of a gigantic cat, he fell asleep. His first sensation upon waking the next morning was one of pleasure, the placid, unquestioning satisfaction that comes to the untroubled mind with the advent of a fine day. To his simple taste, the sights and sounds that met his waking consciousness were possessed of an unaccustomed charm. With daylight, the room that last night had held grim and even ghostly suggestions took on a more human and more friendly air. The ancient mahogany furniture seemed anxious to reflect the morning sunshine. The massive posts of the bed, with their drapery of faded rep, no longer glowered upon the intruder. Each object was bathed in and rejuvenated by the golden warmth the incomparable mellow radiance of sea and sky that flowed in at the open window. For a while he lay in contemplative enjoyment of this early, untainted atmosphere, while the sounds of the awakening day gradually rose above the soft beating of the outgoing tide, falling upon his ears in a pleasant, primitive medley of clacking fowls, joyous yelping dogs, and stamping horses. For a space he lay still, then the inevitable wish to take active part in this world, created from the darkness and the silence of the night, aroused him, and slipping out of bed he drew on a dressing-gown and walked to the window. The sight that met his eyes was one of infinite beauty. The delicacy, the poetry, the subtle, unnameable charm that lie in the hollow of nature's hand wherever land and sky and sea, the warmth and wealth of summer stretched before him, but summer mellowed and softened, by a golden autumnal haze. There are more inspiring countries in Ireland, countries more richly dowered in vegetation, countries more radiant in atmosphere and brilliant in colouring. But there is no land where the hand of the Maker is more poignantly felt, where the mystic spirit of creation, the wonderful, tender, pathetic sense of the beginning, has been so strangely preserved. As Milbank stood at the open window, his eyes travelled without interruption over the wide green fields, neither lawn nor meadow, that spread from the house to the shore, owning no boundary wall beyond the low shelving rocks of red sandstone that rose a natural barrier against the encroachments of the tide. 
and from the fields his gaze wandered onward, drawn irresistibly and inevitably to the sea itself, the watchful, tyrannical guardian of the silent land. It lay before him like a tremendous glassy lake, stretching in one untroubled sweep from Oristan to the point, three miles away, where the purple headland of Carrick Moor completed the semicircle of the bay. The silence, the majesty of that sweep of water, was indescribable. From the rim of yellow sand, which the indolent waves were lapping, to the misted horizon, not one sign of human life marred the smoothness of its surface. Across the bay at Carrickmore a few spirals of smoke rose from the cluster of pink-and-white cottages lying under the shadow of the round tower. On the long sandy strand a couple of bare-legged boys were leisurely raking up the seaweed that the waves had left, and slowly piling it on a waiting donkey-butt. But the sea itself was undisturbed. It lay as it might have lain on the first day of completed creation, mystical, sublime, untouched. Milbank was no poet, yet the scene impressed him. The extraordinary sense of an inimitable and impenetrable peace before which man and man's mere transitory concerns are dwarfed, if not entirely eliminated, touched him vaguely. It was with a tinge of something bordering upon reluctance that he at last drew his eyes from the picture and began to dress. But once freed from the spell of the ocean, his mind reverted to the other interests that lay closer at hand. He found himself wondering how his entertainers would appear on a second inspection, whether, like his room, they would take on a more commonplace semblance with the advent of daylight. The touch of irrepressible and human curiosity that the speculation aroused gave a spur to the business of dressing, and it was well under the twenty minutes usually devoted to his neat and careful toilet when he found himself crossing the corridor and descending the stairs. He encountered no one as he passed through the hall, and catching a fresh suggestion of sunshine through the door that stood hospitably open, he paused for an instant to take a cursory glance at the gravelled sweep that terminated the drive, and the grassy slope surmounted by a fringe of beeches that formed the outlook from the front of the house. Then he turned quickly, and, recrossing the hall, passed into the dining-room. None of the household had yet appeared, but here also the daylight had worked changes. The curtains were drawn back, permitting the view of fields and sea that he had already studied from his bedroom, to break uninterruptedly through the three lofty windows. The effect was one of extreme airiness and light, and it was quite a minute before his gaze turned to the darker side of the room, where the portrait of the famous Antony Ashlyn hung above the fire. Realising that he was alone in the big room, he crossed to the table where breakfast was already laid, the remains of the enormous ham rising from an untidy paper frill to defy the attacks of the largest appetite. In the brilliance of the light, the fineness of the table linen and its state of dilapidation were both accentuated, as was the genuine beauty and intrinsic value of the badly kept silver. But Milbank had no time to absorb these details, for instantly he reached the table, his eye was caught by a folded slip of paper lying by his place. With a touch of surprise he stooped forward and picked it up. Then a wave of annoyance, almost of guilt, succeeded the surprise, as he realised that it was a cheque made out in Ashlyn's straggling handwriting for his losses of the night before. As he fingered it uncomfortably, a vivid remembrance of his interview with Clodagh rose to his mind. He thought of the poverty, suggested rather than expressed by the girl's words. He thought of the muskier horse-dealer who had all but emptied the stables. 
With a puckered brow he studied his own name scrawled across the cheque. Then, with a sense of something like duplicity, he hurriedly pushed it under his plate as he heard the hall-door close and footsteps sound across the hall. A moment later, Ashlyn, followed by his two daughters, entered the room. All three greeted him in turn. Then Ashlyn crossed to the fire and proceeded to stir it into a blaze, while Nance and Clodagh passed to their appointed places. Both girls looked pleasantly in keeping with the fresh morning, their rich, youthful colouring having nothing to fear from the searching light. Nance was dressed in a very clean blue cotton frock that accentuated the colour of her eyes. But Clodagh was again attired in the old-fashioned riding habit, though this time the boy's cap was absent, and the sunshine caught reflections in her light brown hair. "'I hope you don't mind my being dressed like this,' she said as she took her seat. "'I always have a ride in the mornings, and I generally tidy up for breakfast. But I'm riding a race at ten with Larry, my cousin, you know, so it wouldn't be worth while to change to-day.' She spoke quite naturally, encountering Milbank's eyes with no suggestion of embarrassment for last night's adventure. He met her glance for an instant. Then his own wandered guiltily to the corner of the cheque protruding from under his plate. Uh, "'Not at all,' he said hurriedly. "'Not at all. I hope I may be permitted to see the race.' Clodagh smiled. "'Of course, if you like,' she said. "'But it won't be much to look at.' She added this with a quick glance, that ineffectually attempted to gauge the guest's tastes and powers of appreciation. "'Tell be grand,' murmured Nan softly. "'And I know who's going to win.' "'Nonsense,' said Clodagh. "'I won in the practice last night, but the strand was wet.' and the cob is only sure on hard ground. But nevertheless she flushed, and threw a quick look of appreciation and affection at her loyal little partisan. "'What are you two chattering about?' said Ashlyn, standing up from the fire and straightening his shoulders. "'Is that your notion of hospitality, to keep a stranger waiting for his breakfast? Faith, we knew better in the old days, hey, James?' He laughed, and passed round the table. Clodagh presided at the old-fashioned silver urn, and either her confidences of the night before or the prospect of her coming contest affected her, for she forgot the diffidence that had marked her at the dinner of the preceding evening, and talked brightly and with interest on a variety of subjects. Finally, as she handed Milbank his second cup of tea, she touched upon the object of his visit. "'Twas to see the ruins at Carrigmore, not us that you came, wasn't it?' she said, with a shade of humour. He returned her glance seriously. "'Oh, no,' he said, at least. "'Ah, now you've let it out!' she cried with a laugh. "'I knew it. I said so, didn't I, Nance? I knew no one would come here just to see us.' Ashlyn laughed. "'Pon my soul!' he cried. "'You haven't learnt your market value yet, Clo. If I were a girl, I'm hanged if I'd rate myself lower than a fourth-century ruin.' He laughed afresh. But Clodagh displayed no embarrassment. She was too unversed in the ways of coquetry to see or resent the point of the remark. "'Aye,' she said naively, "'what have I to do with it?' After this there was a trifling silence, at the end of which Ashlyn looked quickly at his guest. "'By the way, James,' he exclaimed, "'we were too well amused last night to look ahead. I never thought of asking you about to-day. Have you any pet plans or schemes? Is it to be a pilgrimage to St. Gallen?' "'Or what do you say to a day in the saddle? "'There's a meet not five miles away, "'and if a good gallop pleases you, "'I have as neat a little horse for you "'as ever carried a saddle. "'What do you say? 
Of course, if you think the round tower is likely to collapse or be demolished by a tidal wave, I won't raise a finger, but... Millibank laughed. My dear Dennis, he said quickly, don't you trouble on my account. He glanced deprecatingly over Ashton's sporting attire. Don't you trouble about me. I never was a sportsman, as you know. I'll go to my own hunting, and you go to yours. Don't let me interfere with any plans you may have formed. I enjoy a solitary excursion. But Ashton's face darkened. "'Oh, no,' he objected after a short pause. "'Oh, no. If you're not game for it, then the meat is off, so far as I'm concerned. I can't have you roaming about the country by yourself. Oh, no. I hope I remember my obligations.' Milbank looked distressed. With a genuine feeling of embarrassment, he turned from one face to the other. "'My dear Dennis,' he objected feebly, "'I must really beg of you—' "'Not another word! Not another word!' Ashton ostentatiously helped himself to some ham. "'I hope, James, that whatever our environments, we still understand the traditions of hospitality. If you don't feel on for it, there's no hunting for me to-day.' After this there was another unpleasant pause, but his face was unmistakably dark with disappointment. For a space Milbank toyed with his breakfast, then he spoke again. "'But, my dear Dennis, if you will only allow me—' he ventured. But before Ashton could reply, Clodagh's voice broke in. "'Oh, you needn't bother so much, father,' she said easily. "'You go to the meet, and I'll take Mr. Milbank to Carrickmore. I'll drive him over in the pony-trap, or we'll walk, whichever he likes best.' She spoke fluently and gaily, and it was difficult for Milbank to reconcile the high, buoyant tones of her voice with the serious note struck by her the night before. Filled with relief, however, at her timely interruption, he was satisfied to let the discrepancy go unregarded. "'Excellent!' he cried. "'An excellent idea, Miss Toler. "'Here's your difficulty solved, Dennis. "'Your Irish sense of chivalry won't allow you to deprive me of so charming a guide.' Clodagh laughed frankly at the stilted compliment, and Ashton's face brightened perceptibly. "'Oh, well, as you're so amiable,' he said magnanimously, "'I don't mind admitting that it would have been a bit of a sacrifice to give up the hunt.' though I hadn't been overruled by the majority, and I'd have swallowed the ruins without a grimace. He laughed with restored good humour, and turned to his daughters. "'When you've done breakfast, Clo,' he said, "'run round to the stables, and tell Burke you'll only need to saddle the bay.' With the decision that he was, after all, to enjoy his day's sport, his spirits had risen, and despite the fact that the daylight revealed many evidences of last night's dissipation that would have been invisible thirty years ago, Milbank was pleased and reassured by his appearance. His movements were energetic, his expression alert. He suggested one who is interested and attracted by life, and the elder man was too unimaginative, too single of purpose in his own concerns, to suspect that the energy, the suggestion of anticipation, were due to his own presence in the house, to the promise of excitement and diversion that that presence offered. With the definite arrangement of the day's plans, a fresh energy had descended on the party, and but a few minutes passed before Clodagh and Nance rose from the table and left the room. Then, as the two men were left alone, Milbank put into action the resolution that had been gradually maturing in his mind. Not without a certain trepidation, not without an embarrassed distaste for the task, he bent forward in his precise manner, and drawing out the cheque from beneath his plate, began to smooth it out. At Dennis, he said, I, I found this on my plate when I came downstairs. Ashton looked up hastily and laughed. He had all the Irishman's distaste to money as a topic of conversation. He was as sensitive in the offering of it to another as in the accepting of it for himself. 
"'Oh, that's all right,' he said quickly. "'Not another word about that, James. Not another syllable.' But Milbank continued to finger the cheque. Uh, "'Dennis,' he began again, a shade of nervousness audible in his voice. "'I am uncertain how to say what I want to say. I am extremely anxious not to offend you, and yet I feel—I fear that you may take offence. Before replying, Ashton drained the cup of strong tea that stood beside his plate. Then he glanced again at his companion. "'What in thunder are you driving at?' he asked good-humouredly. Milbank looked down. "'That's what I want to explain,' he answered, without raising his head. "'And you must not allow it to offend you. I want you, for the sake of old friendship, to let me tear this cheque up. I was excited last night. I infringed on one of my set rules.' that of never playing cards for high stakes. It is for my own sake that I ask permission to do this. It—it'll put me right with myself. He laughed deprecatingly. For a second there was no indication that his laboured explanation had been even heard. Then with alarming suddenness Ashton brought his hand down upon the table, ripping out an oath. "'And where the devil do I come in?' he demanded. "'Is it because you see the place going to rack and ruin that you think you can insult me in my own house?' I'd have you to know that when an Ashton needs charity, he will ask for it. In the spasm of rage that had attacked him, his eyes blazed and the veins in his forehead swelled. Then, suddenly catching a glimpse of the consternation on his guest's face, he controlled himself by an effort, and with a loud laugh pushed back his chair and rose. Ah, forgive me, James, he said roughly. You don't understand. You never did understand. It's the cursed pride of a cursed country. The less we have to be proud of, the more damn proud we are. We have a sense of humour for everything in creation except ourselves. Again he laughed harshly. Then again his mood changed. James, he said seriously, put that cheque in your pocket, and if you value my friendship, never mention it again. We may be a bad lot. We may be all close as of us, fools, rakes, spendthrifts, but no Ashton ever shirked his debts of honour. The words were bombastic, the sentiment false. But the natural dignity and distinction of the man, dissipated failure though he might be, were unmistakable, as he stood with high head and erect figure. By the ironic injustice of such circumstances, Milbank, honest, prosaic, incapable of a dishonourable action, felt suddenly humiliated. With shamefaced haste he muttered an apology, and thrust the cheque into his pocket. At the moment that he did so, Clodagh re-entered the room. "'It's all right, father,' she exclaimed. "'The bay will be round in a second, and Larry has come. "'Are you ready, Mr. Milbank?' He responded with instant alacrity. It was the second time that morning that she had unconsciously come to his relief. "'Oh, oh quite,' he said. "'Quite ready. Shall we start?' "'This minute, if you like. Good-bye, father. I hope it will be a good run.' She crossed the room quickly, then paused at the door. "'Remember, the race will be nothing at all worth seeing,' she added. "'glancing back over her shoulder at the guest. "'End of chapter 5